everyone. This is episode 171 of Milwaukee's Tailgate Brewers podcast, part of the MKE Tailgate Podcast Network. I'm James, joined today by Ryan Topp and a new addition to our team. Uh, he's the lead prospect analyst and assistant baseball editor at Roto-Wire. Uh, James Anderson, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Really excited to be uh, on the podcast. This is it's going to be a good time. I, I love following your guys' work and really excited to talk Brewers prospects once a month going forward. And I, I know it's not the most exciting system in the world, but there's still uh, plenty of guys to talk about. Definitely. And you're here for a good timing, I, I guess I would say, with uh, the international signing period coming up this last week. So we're going to get to that in a second. In the meantime, you can help support our podcast network at patreon.com slash MKE tailgate for just five bucks a month. Our ball and glove and above patrons get the minor league extra podcast with Ryan and James. You also get Paul's reporting as eligible uh, Packers mini pods previewing a Packers game every week. And they'll have another one to preview this week because they won yesterday. So good news there all around. In the meantime, we actually did have some Brewers news this week. <laughs> to talk about which is refreshing you know we've kind of been twiddling our thumbs for the last few weeks here we'll get to the january 15th signings in a little bit but first the brewers did avoid arbitration uh with the two cases that they had left it was brandon woodruff and josh Hader. they both had to exchange figures uh on friday Hader ended up signing for a little more than a six and a half million woodruff signed for 3.275 million in his first year of arbitration eligibility uh, so I guess those were kind of the final pieces kind of still out there when it comes to the Brewers payroll and trying to figure out what their expenses are going to be. I guess the hope is that, you know, with those set now, maybe the Brewers have a better idea of what they can do free agency wise. So I guess, Ryan, my first question is uh, that brings the payroll to about what, 75 million or so. So I guess yeah. how much more, if anything, do you see the Brewers doing this offseason, or is this kind of where we're fearing the payroll will stick, given everything we've talked about? Yeah, I don't think that this is necessarily where it's going to stick, but I think that they are still waiting to make decisions until they have more clarity as to what the season is going to look like, what the fans in the stand situation is going to be like, and all of that. I think they are waiting a lot of that out because they just don't want to commit to paying a bunch of money for uh, games that are going to take place in empty stands. I think that's their their real issue. And we've talked about it a, a so many times on here that Milwaukee does derive so much of its its revenue from fans in the stands as opposed to a lot of teams that have better TV contracts. So the Brewers are more dependent on that than other teams until they get a better TV contract situation. Now, they do still have a lot of TV money rolling in from the national deal, and they still do get money from their their local deal as well. So they have money coming in. It's not like they're destitute or anything. And they probably could realistically afford to spend more. But you can also see why they're holding off just because if you don't know what the fans in the stand situation is, you really don't know what revenue is going to look like. And I don't know if we're going to get more clarity on that in the next few months. So we will see. I, I still think that it's probably due for very late signings or possibly signing guys into the season or making a trade if they're if they're competitive and they're in it and doing well. Yeah, we saw kind of a couple of signings at least come during or after that, you know, arbitration filing deadline. So maybe even just league wide, it kind of spurs some action here. 
James, uh, we've been talking about this for a couple of weeks, but you're new here. So I guess, do you see the Brewers doing anything, whether it's like first base, third base, anything like that to try to fill some of those holes? Or is this kind of the, the team you expect to see going forward? I could see them handing out maybe a couple more like one year deals with like a team option, you know, maybe someone like CJ Crone or something like that. I, I don't think they're going to be spending more than seven figures annually on anyone they sign. Yeah. So I, I, I generally kind of agree with Ryan that, um, you know, there's, there's not going to be some sort of big uh, transaction coming. It's, it's going to be kind of buying low on guys, you know, getting platoon bats in there and uh, hopefully guys with a little bit of defensive versatility, but, um, yeah, I'm, I'm not expecting anything huge. Yeah, the David Stern standard stuff. Right. <laughs> You're saying Daniel Roberts, Robertson isn't a, a huge addition? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> no. That was at least the major league contract they handed out. So, uh, you know, maybe we're, we're seeing some progress. But, yeah, that was that was the, the one-year deals you're kind of talking about. So I'm not too optimistic we'll see the, the multi-year deals either. But. You know, like Ryan said, maybe we get into February spring training time and there's still some names out there. Maybe they just sign, sign with the Brewers to have a job. Who knows? Given everything we've talked about, I, I'm not terribly optimistic either that the Brewers are going to spend much more than this. You know, it. I definitely don't see them inching towards that 100 million payroll mark that they've been at the past couple of years. And I think even going into this offseason, you know, the the ground groundwork was laid there to kind of temper those expectations and kind of get people to understand that they weren't going to get at that level. Um, even without the pandemic, I think that was kind of the expectation, but uh, I guess, you know, the lack of major league moving kind of makes the, the minor league side a little bit more important. And we did have another big deadline in this last week, as I mentioned that the January 15th, I guess is the new July 2nd. Uh, this year with the pandemic and everything. So it was the the big official signing day for the international signing period. The Brewers were active there again. You know, for a long time, the Brewers kind of ignored this aspect of, uh, you know, the minors and all that. But they've really stepped up those efforts in the last few years. Uh, they made another big signing this week. Venezuelan shortstop Jackson Shurio was probably the headliner there. They signed him for just under $2 million dollars. MLB Pipeline had him as the 18th ranked international prospect uh, on their list this year. So pretty uh, high profile signing, I guess. James, what else do we know about him right now? I know it's hard with these teenage kids to kind of get a lot of info, but I guess, can you give us a quick top line breakdown? Yeah, I mean, he's got kind of your classic center field tools. He's uh, really fast. He's really athletic, uh, but he's really skinny as well. Yeah, that's kind of a, the major knock for me is that you you really have to kind of project uh, some physical growth for him in order to be expecting more than like 10 to 15 homer power. And that definitely could happen, obviously. I mean, he's 16 years old, uh, listed at 6'1", 150. Uh, he could be a, a bit bigger than that at this point. But um, yeah, I mean, not, uh, you know, not a guy that I expect to get the sort of Hedbert Perez treatment in like a year. Uh, I mean, he's someone that probably agreed to sign with the Brewers for seven figures like two years ago uh, when he was like 14. So I'm sure that they maybe were hoping he would have filled out a little bit more at this stage, but um, he has those sort of premium up the middle tools where 
uh, if he does kind of come around offensively and, and start to impact the ball a little bit more, he could be a pretty promising prospect down the road. Yeah, you like to see six one. The the one fifty is less encouraging, but again, all kinds of people I knew in high school had profiles <laughs> like that, and then a year and a half later, like you know, all of a sudden it's it's you know like two hundred instead of one fifty. So that is uh, it's just part of the deal with going after guys that are this young, which is something that needs to get worked on and fixed and figured out because the international market is just kind of a there's there's still shadiness it's not as bad as it used to be the the kickback stuff that used to happen I don't think happens quite to the degree that it uh it used to the thing that like Jim Bowden got nailed for but there's still a lot of things and when you're when guys are are being asked to make commitments when they're 13 years old 14 years old it's just it's unseemly you know uh, the other thing that was kind of noteworthy about the the Brewers July two class was they sent a couple pitchers from Nicaragua and they've been the Brewers have been a little more active in some of the less traditional areas. Everybody sends scouts to the Dominican Republic. Uh, Venezuela is obviously pretty active and the Brewers have done great work in a lot of their top prospects in the international market. The last four or five years have come from uh, from Venezuela. But they've also expanded out. They've they've signed some guys from uh, Colombia, from Panama, and now a couple pitchers from Nicaragua. And that's it's interesting and it's good to get sort of in on the ground floor in places that are maybe emerging talent hubs of for international talent and to to stake out those positions and to be sort of thought of as the team to go to in those areas. So that was interesting to see. Uh, did anybody else really stand out to you, James? You know, not not really. I obviously like I, I'm kind of coming from this like for for my job with RotoWire, I sort of have to be on top of all 30 teams, and so you know I haven't had time to dive in team by team and really look at kind of the the guys who aren't you know top 400, top 500 overall prospects in the game. So yeah, I'll, I'll be doing that over the next few weeks here and. You know, I, I think you, you nailed it, though. It's it's not necessarily about these specific pitchers they signed from Nicaragua. It's about kind of establishing yourself in that market so that, you know, over the next, you know, five to ten years, you can hopefully land some of the, the bigger profile players to come out of there, um, ideally on the hitting side. From a more casual fan perspective, I can't remember a prospect coming from Nicaragua. So that's kind of fun and interesting, too. So Mauricio Dubon was another one where the Brewers were. I mean, obviously, he was picked up by the Red Sox, but they kind of identified that, too. And he where was he from? Was it Honduras? I forget. But Honduras, yes. Honduras I and believe, he was, yeah. ended up being the first big leaguer ever from that country, you know. So uh, there's definitely value there in kind of seeking out those those kind of players and you know if you hit and they end up in the majors and they're wearing your cap that's kind of a big factor when it comes to signing those guys those teenagers that are looking up to that guy now in the future so definitely worth i think thinking outside the box on some of these guys too definitely an interesting strategy by the brewers Brewers front office we did have some uh, patreon questions about this signing period too specifically uh jackson shurio you know, obviously, when the the Brewers sign a, a prospect for two million dollars or a little less, they're 
the next question is going to be, well, where does he fit in the system? So I guess, James, my next question for you is, I guess, where would you slot him in in the top 10, 20, 30 prospects or so? I mean, understanding we've got a very limited understanding of what he can do now, but I guess in terms of upside and, you know, the Brewers are a farm system that doesn't have a ton of upside right now. So I guess with that in mind, where would you kind of slot him in now? I'm going to throw him in kind of towards the uh, back of the top 15 or so, kind of in that sort of Xavier Warren, Hayden Cantrell uh, range there. Not not in the top 10 for me, but certainly in the top 20 and probably closer to 10 than 20. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. Until we get people who in the public sphere are getting eyes on him, like a, a lot of information usually comes from, say, Eric Longenhagen of fan graphs will will see guys on backfields especially because on the arizona side he gets to see a lot of those guys so once you start hearing like that was where we we started getting good indications that uh eduardo garcia was somebody to keep an eye on was was long and Hagen catching him that's kind of what you have to wait for is for people to start getting eyes on them and we don't know what that's going to look like this year so one thing that is interesting about this so for people that are unaware, the way the international market works, teams waited until after the new year generally to actually their contracts, even though they were signed on July 2nd, they wouldn't go into effect until after the new year because that would bump guys back one year for the rule five. It would give you an extra year on the rule five side of things. But what that would mean then is that that summer guys couldn't because their contract, even though it was signed, it wasn't in force yet. That meant that guys like weren't playing in the DSL that first summer. They weren't able to like they could they could go and do like workouts with the team and 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 that, but they couldn't actually play in games. And now that they're doing the signing in January, and I don't know if this is going to be a permanent thing going forward or if we're going to go back to to July second, but because of that it it changes the the schedule a little bit and it'll be interesting to see if these new signings are going to be in camp in the united states this year or we may see uh jackson churio in the united states as soon as spring training if that is a thing that even happens who knows exactly what that's all going to look like at this point but at the latest you would sort of expect to get some information on them out of instructs in the fall as long as those are going and they did last fall. So I don't know why they wouldn't this fall, but that's a, a place where a lot of these guys get their first taste of playing, not even necessarily games, but playing some sort of organized uh, ball in the United States. It often happens at the, uh, at the instructs in the fall. Yeah. It's definitely hard to kind of get a gauge on the international prospects until they start playing, you know, against higher competition, whether it's coming stateside or, or what have you. So I always kind of wonder, you know, the Brewers get a lot of flack for their low farm system rankings right now. You know, uh, it, it's gotten better, I guess, over the last couple of years or two with, with some solid drafts, but they're still kind of generally regarded as what, like a bottom 10 farm system, if that. And, you know, those farm system rankings kind of get muddled once you get into those, those areas. There's not a whole lot of difference, but those rankings are sort of built on upside and what we know about those players. Right. So when you have a lot of your higher upside, uh, higher potential players are, are these kids coming from Latin America or where have you, it's kind of hard to really project the farm system. Right. So I guess James, my question would be, 
is there a chance like the Brewers farm system is not as bad as it was made out to be if some of these guys hit? You know, it, it's hard to tell until they start playing, like I said. And, and you know, you, we've seen it with you know Hedbert Perez or whatever. Once the guys start getting hyped, the, the system gets a little bit more respect, right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think Hedbert is he's just kind of ascended like a rocket ship here over the past six months or so without playing in official games, but that's still just a really, really good sign. That's typically what you want. Like you want just nothing but positive momentum on these, these big international signees. And there's, there's other guys from his class who are much more uh, strongly considered at the time of their signing who haven't had that type of trajectory. So um, that's, that's huge for the system. I mean, if, if Garrett Mitchell has a good debut season, that'll be really good for the system. Uh, Eduardo Garcia, like if he can have a, a healthy year in the lower levels, like Freddie Zamora, if, if he comes out and, and has a strong debut, Jefferson Cuero, like there, there's a there's enough up the middle talent where if kind of like half of those guys really turn heads, then the system will really uh, start to trend up, you know, still uh, a very weak system on the pitching side of things. I, I love Antoine Kelly, but you know, the rest of the guys you're, you're kind of hoping for like a number four starter, but yeah, like if you when every year when you sign like a dozen guys from, from Latin America, um, you know, if just one or two of those guys from each class ends up working out in the lower levels, then all of a sudden you, you really start to kind of build things up. So um, they're not going to be shooting up the the farm system rankings, but I could see them being inside the top 20 by the end of 2021 if uh, they have some pretty nice debuts this season. You're thinking of Garrett Mitchell specifically, maybe Terang turning heads at the higher levels. Yeah, with Terang, it's kind of like I don't expect him to be so good that people are like, oh, wow. Um, it's more just kind of keep doing what you're doing. Like, you know, he's kind of got sort of a lower ceiling to me as like he could be an everyday player, but not a first division one, I wouldn't expect. Whereas Mitchell does sort of have that upside, but he's he's got more variance, I think, than Terang. Like, Mitchell could have an awesome year. He could have uh, a tough year, too. So I think that that, that part of it's huge. I, I expect Terang to just kind of, you know, keep doing what he's doing and, and sort of keep his value um, fairly where it is right now. Yeah, with Mitchell, it's all going to be about whether or not they try to change his swing. If there is yep. a, a real change that is attempted there, then we're going to have to be patient. And if they they aren't trying to change the swing, then you kind of wonder, okay, what is the upside here? Because with the swing that he was using in college, it really was – it was at UCLA, but it, it basically, as JP said on our, our minor league extra last month, like it, it's kind of like the Stanford swing. Like it, It's all about contact and just trying to put the ball in play on the ground and – he has real power, like he has superpower, and it shows up in batting practice, but it it has not necessarily shown up in games because his swing isn't really designed to do that. But there's always the thing, like if you're going to bring a guy in and make him your first round draft pick and then change his swing, like that's it's an indication that like it's a serious thing that needs to be done, like changing uh, drastically changing a pitcher's mechanics or changing a hitter's swing like that's dangerous and it's it can really it can either unlock a player and set them up to far exceed 
whatever you know previous expectations had been there, or it can set them back or just kill their career. So it's going to be the biggest thing to watch is trying to figure out what is going on with Garrett Mitchell's swing. And hopefully we'll, we'll start to get good indications as to what's going on with that this year. So you're talking yeah. about changing a, a first-round picks swing, and I'm having terrible Corey Ray flashbacks. Is that <laughs> is is that something to worry about here? I don't think. I mean, I don't think anyone thought Corey Ray's swing needed to be changed when he got drafted. Um, I, I think the reason Mitchell fell to the Brewers, like, I mean, he was projected by a lot of places to go, you know, top ten, top twelve. And I think exactly what Ryan's talking about is why he was available to the Brewers is because not many teams want to take a guy from college in the first round who they immediately are tempted to overhaul his swing. And you're probably going to have in most front offices, you would have at least some people in the room saying, let's leave him alone. And then you would have other people saying, let's change his swing. So you need full buy-in. Um, from the top down in terms of what the developmental plan is going to be with him. So I think that that's like, he he's way too talented and too toolsy to have been available to the Brewers where he was. Um, but that, that big thing about the swing is, is why he was there. Yeah. Well, so with Ray, it was a little bit different because his swing was always changing. Even in college, he didn't have like one swing. It was constantly evolving. And gotcha. so, and it, it's continued to do that in pro ball as well. Uh, not quite, I think, as much as it was in college, but uh, he was just a guy that was always kind of tinkering and changing that. And there are guys that that do that throughout their careers who have a lot of success and by by constantly changing. But he hasn't been able to find that sweet spot, at least not yet. Hopefully that comes. But the more time goes on, the less and less likely that becomes. Uh, the more I think about it, it's kind of like the. Uh, the Trent Grisham situation where they brought him into pro ball and had him change his swing to get away from that golf grip that he used. And then he just kind of never went anywhere as a prospect. He never was able to make consistent contact. They finally said, okay, you can go back to your previous swing. And that's when 2019 happened, you know, and he, he refound that magic. And, you know, since then it's been a pretty big upward trajectory for him. So, there's always risks with things like this. I actually think more of like the Taylor Youngman situation when they drafted him, people were not necessarily thinking that they were drafting him to change his mechanics, but they did. They, they identified him and that was a, a weird situation. I know Jason parks always criticized them for this was like, well, you don't take a guy at number 12, especially in that draft, that 2011 draft, you don't take a guy at 12 that you think needs a mechanical overhaul. Like, that just doesn't make sense. And, you, like, you can agree or disagree on whether or not that mechanical overhaul was necessary, but just the fact that they th apparently thought it was because that's the first thing they did with him when he came in, that's kind of a red flag. So it, the Mitchell situation is different because drafting a guy at 12 in a loaded draft is not the same as drafting a guy at 20 in a non-loaded draft. And Mitchell has huge, huge upside. Like, obviously, the tools are there. So the question just becomes, like, at what point does that risk, is that risk worth it? And they clearly thought it was at 20. And, you know, maybe they don't think it's it's that drastic of a change that is needed. Maybe they see smaller tweaks. We're just going to have to wait and see what that looks like as time goes on. 
Yeah, it's a good thing we're talking so much about Garrett Mitchell because we actually do have a Patreon question that we got last week. But James, we wanted to save it until you you joined us this week. So Anthony Martin, one of our patrons, is asking, you know, knowing Garrett Mitchell hasn't seen a full season or hasn't seen any full season ball yet, but was an established player in college. What would an ideal timeline for his arrival to the majors be? Could he be the first replacement for Lorenzo Kane in two years? Or is that, I guess, too aggressive of a timeline for you, James? So I think this year in 2021, it's going to be all about development. And it, like I think he will probably spend most, if not all, the year in A ball, like probably at high A is where I would I'd guess he spends the, the bulk of the season and he'll be working on these mechanical adjustments we're, we're talking about. And so then if, if, every, if everything goes like perfectly, maybe he gets a, a taste of double A before the end of this season, but I, I wouldn't be expecting that. And then 2022 is kind of like you let him go as far as his performance dictates. Like you you'd probably send him to double A for 2022. If he handles it uh, pretty quickly, then you, give him a quick bump up to triple a maybe he gets to the big leagues that season he could struggle at double a obviously he could spend all of 2022 at double a in like kind of a worst case scenario but it's just 2022 i think is going to be sort of when we find out like where when's he coming how quickly is he coming i think 2021's it's not going to be about like moving him through the system it's going to be about focusing on these these developmental uh things at the plate um, so I, I'm thinking, you know, kind of best case, he debuts late 2022, um, maybe early 2023 is probably a more realistic timeline. Uh, so yeah, I think I think he will be the replacement to Lorenzo Cain. Uh, it's just kind of a matter of when. Yeah, I think that that's a very reasonable timeline. It's going to be interesting to see where they send him out of camp this year. If he goes to Carolina or if they actually hold on to him and keep him in extended spring training, that's going to be I think that's going to be sort of our first indication of what they really think of where his swings at is whether or not they they send him out to start playing full season ball right away. Because remember, this year, uh, the high and low A have flopped. So guys would go first to Carolina. That's the low A now. And Wisconsin would be the high A. And I don't know, they probably maybe they wouldn't have a problem with sending him there right away to start the the year. But I I'm going to be interested. That's going to be a thing to watch in camp and see what they they think of that. If we even have like a true minor league camp, because that's that's a weird situation, though. I believe they were talking about the fact that they are going to stagger that now the minor league camp so that they don't have that many players all together at the same time. So like the the first groups that will report will be like the high, you know, the triple A type guys, and then they'll stagger it and have those guys go out and start playing elsewhere and then bring in the younger guys as camp wears on. So it's going to be fascinating to watch and see how this all plays out because we didn't have a minor league season last year. And right. it, it, so we don't know exactly what it's going to look like this year even. I don't know if they really know what it's going to look like. I think they maybe have guesses and hopes, but see how it actually plays out. It'll be interesting to see, too, because, like, you know, we've talked about in the last year how many of these guys who weren't in the 
Camp Appleton kind of missed out on a year of development too. So it, it's kind of a weird situation with prospects this year. So it, definitely a lot to, to keep an eye on as we go forward. Uh, we do have another Patreon question that's kind of about the minor league system. Uh, Adam Post is asking, is there any way that the Brewers improve the state of the farm system without just starting another rebuild entirely? I guess, Ryan, we'll start with you. I, I mean, the Brewers have kind of, uh, you know, this last go around kind of did a rebuild without fully tanking the major league team, right? Could they do something like that again? Yes. And the thing about this is farm systems, especially ones that look like the Brewers do right now, where a lot of the players that have upside are young and inexperienced within the system. These systems are often the ones that are the hardest to rank and the ones that get misranked the most. Uh, I know I'm a shameless homer on this stuff, but like if you go back and look at some of the farm systems that the Brewers had that were ranked at the bottom of the barrel in, say, 2010, 2011, 2012 era, and look at the players that actually came out of those systems, yeah, they were ranked towards the bottom, but if you look at the players that were actually present in the system at that time, there were a decent number of guys who really did well. Chris Davis, Scooter, uh, Scooter Mike Fires, yeah. Jimmy Nelson. Yeah, there were guys there who who ended up having like significant big league impacts or like in Jimmy Nelson's case, had that brief shining moment before he got hurt. These things are always snapshots in time. And so I think that we could see this system play out five years from now as being a lot better than what people perceived it as now. It's just sort of a question of are players like Mario Feliciano and Garrett Mitchell and Bryce Trang able to take big steps forward? How good is Ethan Small? You know, is Antoine Kelly like a potential starter as opposed to just, you know, a power reliever? Those kind of questions have to get sorted out and answered. And then you go beyond that to the Hedbert Perez, uh, Eduardo Garcia, those type of guys. Are they the real deal? Because if they are and you actually have like a superstar in in say Hedbert Perez that changes the entire complexion of the system, even if it wasn't obvious at this point in time. Yeah. I guess James, what's your take on that is do the brewers kind of need a, a hard rebuild to kind of build things up or are they on a, a decent track right now to kind of rebuild some of that farm system value? My first thought uh, with that question was just like, you know, is this the year that they trade Josh Hader? Mm -hmm. um, because, I think you, by tr even though even though like the Brewers' strength is their bullpen, trading a reliever to me doesn't that doesn't qualify as like a full rebuild, right? So right. if you trade Josh Hader, like you're going to be getting good prospects back, and that's you know probably you'd probably get two prospects that would slide into your top ten, so that would improve your farm system quite a bit and it wouldn't necessitate a full rebuild. So that was kind of what I thought of first with that question. The farm system will get better as the season goes on, most likely just because so many of these guys are sort of unknowns. And even if only like half of them end up having strong seasons, that will just sort of lift the farm system a little bit. Like, I mean, Hedbert Perez to me is someone that I think could finish the year as like a top 20 prospect in the game. And so like, just if that just happens by itself, then of course, uh, they'll be ranked higher as, as a farm system uh, this offseason. But like just in terms of improving it with adding pieces, to me, like the obvious uh, one there would be just trading Josh Hader. 
Thank you for mentioning that because that keeps our streak of talking about trading Josh Hader going <laughs> for like four or five straight weeks. We didn't get a question about it this week, but I feel like we, we keep coming back to that, you know, especially now that we know what he's going to be making and whether that gets to be cost prohibitive going forward in the future, you know, 6.675 million is what he agreed to. So, you know, well, I think for this year, it, it, it's uh, probably a good chance he sticks around. I know Paul, you know, he's mentioned he's a trade deadline possibility, depending on how far out they fall. Uh, but I think you're right that that's probably the the major piece that they could move to quickly improve this farm system without necessarily just tanking the entire team, right? Outside of that, I don't even know who the valuable trade chips would be. So I think that's still probably your, your main piece, right? I mean, it's so. Woodruff and Hero, right? And that's... Yeah. And they're still very early. Yeah. If you wanted to, to Blake Snell him, basically, that might be a question or a conversation a year or two down the road. But right now, I, I think you're right that haters probably the, the biggest and quickest way to kind of inflate those farm system rankings. One last Patreon question this week comes from Aslatam. James, that's Metallica backwards, in, in case you were wondering. <laughs> so Theo Epstein has a new job. You know, he, he quit the Cubs uh, president job over the winter, and now he's got a cushy consultant gig with Rob Manfred's office. Uh, the way it read to me is basically like uh, the old Bill Simmons joke, the VP of common sense kind of thing, uh, where it sounds like he's kind of being brought in to kind of give his thoughts on proposed rule changes and say, hey, these would be the unintended consequences. Maybe don't do this or maybe do that. So that's kind of the background there. So ask Latam's question is asking if you were in Theo's shoes or in his new role, what would you do to get more action in the game? Whether it's a pitch clock, lowering or moving the mound, deadening the ball, limiting the number of pitch, uh, number of pitchers, shrinking strike zones, ban the shift, all, all the stuff that we've been basically talking about. And he was super helpful to provide a graph too, which I know Paul would have appreciated if he was here uh, kind of showing, you know, obviously the last few years we've seen a huge spike in strikeouts, less balls in play, Theo himself is actually kind of owned up to maybe breaking baseball in this way by focusing his teams around that. So I guess, Ryan, let's just start with you. If you were Theo, what would you tell Rob Manfred to do to kind of liven up the game? Yeah, I think it starts in the strike zone. I think you have to begin by not necessarily shrinking it, but at least moving it around a little bit. And the low ball strike was more of a problem in the past, but I don't know. I'm not even sure at this point, like what the best thing is, because the the last few years have seen, you know, high spin rate fastballs up in the zone become the the new pound a sinker low. Right. Like that has changed in the game. So I'm not even sure exactly what changes would need to be made. There are much smarter people than I to answer that question. But I think it it probably does have to start with the strike zone and potentially moving the pitching mound back, though. There's disagreement on what people think that would that would accomplish so but the the mound moving back not so much moving up and down because that's what usually gets talked about i'm on the ben yeah. Lindbergh uh plan of if you're going to move the mound move it back because it hasn't moved forward and back in you know forever basically so that i think could potentially help things out but for anything like that the the change is going to need to start elsewhere probably in the Atlantic League, where we saw them manipulating things and trying different stuff out to see what the effect yeah. would be. You wouldn't just all of a sudden say, 
yep, okay, we're moving the mound back to 62 feet and like at the major league level and here we go. You would you would roll it out slowly in the minor leagues first and see what the effect was and before you you would do something drastic at the big league level. So probably nothing in the immediate future that way, but I think it starts with the strike zone. I guess people might be wondering what would moving the mound back do? Would that be to kind of lessen the the impact of the high velocity? Is that kind of the thought or Yeah, that's the theory is it it yeah. would it would lengthen the time just slightly that uh it takes the ball to get to home plate give the hitter just a little bit more of a chance to react yeah i guess james what what changes would you make if you you were the all-powerful baseball god so i've got two that he mentioned i i think universal dh for sure i think that'll happen regardless of theo being in that role the deadening the ball part interests me i like not you know i'm thinking kind of pre-juiced ball right like right like so to me it's just go back to like a normal ball um because i i hate these opposite field home runs where it just looks like a pop out off the bat and then it just keeps carrying and carrying and like you're just like he didn't square that up at all and it still went out to the opposite field um like to me that's that's stupid so i would i would just go back to a normal baseball my big one is is probably pretty controversial but i think baseball would be wise to sort of be the four runners in this and that would be just completely eliminating all uh instant replay um like i just i think in like 162 game season there are going to be bad calls even with replay. Like we still see them get stuff wrong and we just have to wait five minutes for them to get it wrong. And <laughs> over the course of a 162 game season, everything's just going to even out. Like you're just not going to have one team getting screwed. Like it, it just, and, and, and honestly, I don't even care. Like I, my whole point of watching baseball is to be kind of entertained and I'd rather take, you know, uh, a few blown calls over the course of a season and save hours on my life that weren't spent waiting for them to uh, figure out the replay. Um, and to me, like just that, that would speed up the pace of the game. Um, you just would have less stoppages. And I just don't think anyone would really care that much in terms of the quality of the product. Um, you'd have, you'd have some controversial, games that would be decided by something that could have been reviewed that that weren't but i just think people would forget about that in 24 hours i i'm actually maybe kind of with you on this one uh not only just because craig council seems to get screwed constantly when he challenges a call and it's clearly should be overturned and it's not but just you know we we've seen how granular these instant replays have become too where you know we wanted it just for the fair foul safer out at first situations right and now it's kind of devolved into well the second baseman's cleat was off the base a half inch when he was turning the double play or that kind of thing and it's kind of just really gotten maddening to to see you know those little technicalities come up so it i feel like it's not exactly doing the job it was intended to do so you know, maybe you're right. Over the course of a 162 game season, screw it. Let's just keep things moving. Bad calls happen. It's the human element people always want, right? So if we're not going to have robot arms, let's just get rid of instant replay while we're at it. And 
go full bore into that. I don't know. I guess for, for my solutions, I would tend to shy away from anything that kind of dictates how managers can strategize the game. So I'm like totally against banning the shift. I feel mm-hmm. like that strategic play, like, you know, no other sport would be like football is not going to go, Oh, you can't play zone defense or you can't not go cover two or something like that. You know, well, the NBA uh, did do the illegal defense thing. They did. Yeah. Yeah. But that's slightly different. I think you can't have the league dictate, Oh, you can't play to a player's strengths or weaknesses. I feel like that's the entire part of sports is the strategizing to kind of target those areas right right and i think especially with that one that you're talking about there the banning the shift i don't think they would even have the consequence that they think it would i think it would actually i think it would encourage people to be even more uh you know basically elevate and celebrate and just pull the (laughs) ball all the time because you're taking away the the main consequence of that is that you're going to put a lot of balls on the ground right you're going to you're going to pull a lot of balls on the ground and that is going to be like the penalty for it. Well, if you eliminate some of the penalty for it, which would be having the the people all lined on that side, it just encourages you to to try to do that even more. So I don't think that would even solve the problem. They think it would like, yes, more balls would get through like more, more weak grounders would get through. I don't think that makes the game more exciting. You're just going to have even more people trying to trying to basically lean back and, pop the ball out of the park on that point my enjoyment of the game is not going to increase if dan vogelbach pokes a couple more singles through the second base hole you know like right i want to see him hit home runs i think that's where you generate the, the interest in the game so as far as kind of increasing the 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 action of the game i think ryan say you know move the mound back try to give hitters a little bit more of a chance to actually put the ball in play. I think something to mitigate the the high velocity and, and just the number of strikeouts because I I'm a pitching geek and I love watching strikeouts, but at the same time too, I, I don't know if I can do it for three hours straight. So uh, especially once you get in the parade of bullpen arms. So I, I would say maybe, you know, you know the, the three batter minimum thing, fine, cool. Sorry. It ruined Alex Claudio's career. But you know, it, it, I think I think that's a decent change. I, if you want to go pitch clock, fine. But also, I, you know, the thing with the pitch clock is, if if you have pitchers rushing and and things like that, you're not exactly speeding up the game either. If you're having more base runners, so I, a lot of these questions, I, you know, it's a double edged sword to use a cliche. But you know, there's there's unintended consequences to all this. I don't think you're gonna really speed up the game all that much but well and that's what theo is there for is to try to anticipate the unanticipated consequences because he has thought a lot of this stuff through i'm sure and i think that that from that perspective this does make sense i would much rather have a theo epstein making these changes than having it come from rob manfred because (laughs) right another yes man in that office wouldn't wouldn't do any good Right. right yeah yes and theo is going to have the power because People know who he is like Theo is very well known and very well respected. And so he's going to have some authority and some pull here to be able to do some things. And if he doesn't like something, it's going to make it harder for MLB to do it. You know, that's that's what this whole role is going to be, I think. So hopefully it's not just a salesman job like, hey, we're we're bringing him in to sell these things that we want to do. I don't think it's that, but no. 
it, it would be interesting too. It got brought up by Meg Rowley on the Effectively Wild podcast that uh, you know Manford might be looking over his shoulder a little bit on this. Is, is, is Theo going to be commissioner? I mean, day? if Theo <laughs> wants to be commissioner, I think there's a lot of people that would be very okay with that. And after what happened in this last year with Manfred, where he got completely schooled by the union on the the negotiations, I guess, coming out of the 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 spring shutdown, like I would not be surprised if if uh, there is some looking over the shoulder going on on his part. And he's definitely uh, worked with some of the more high-profile owners who could have a, a sway in that commissioner vote, right? So <laughs> I don't know. Mm-hmm. Maybe maybe in about ten years ago or so, we're looking at Commissioner Theo. Uh, we'll see how that plays out. Uh, in the meantime, we also put out a call for questions on our Twitter account. That's at MKE Tailgate. We put out that call for questions every week. So if you have a question, you can also uh, reply there. If you're not a patron. You can also tweet your questions to us individually. Ryan is at RD Top. James is at Real J.R. Anderson. Paul is at Badger Noonan. I'm at James L. Uh, we did get a couple of questions this week, and especially with James joining us, a lot of prospects and uh, Hedbert-related questions because Hedbert is all our favorite. Uh, so our first question comes from Turtle Ball. He's asking, James, is, is Hedbert the next Soto? I guess lofty expectations there, but what are, yeah. what's your take? <laughs> I don't think there's anyone in the minors who is the next Soto. I mean, he's he's obviously a once in a generation type of hitter. Um, you know, I went when I got that question, I was kind of trying to think like who a good comp for Hedbert's ceiling would be, and I couldn't really I couldn't really come up with anything great. Um, he's just, he's such a, he's a unique prospect. Like he's really, there, there aren't many guys in the minors who have legitimate five tool potential and he does. So, you know, there, and there aren't many guys in the majors who are true five tool players. Um, I mean, that word gets thrown around a ton, but uh, he, he definitely sort of has that type of a, of a scouting report right now. And like I said earlier, I mean, I think, you know, I, I obviously rank a lot of these guys for, for fantasy purposes and Hedbert Perez is already going to be a top 50 prospect for me in uh, dynasty leagues before he um, plays his first pro game, just because of that potential for plus hit plus power plus run. Um, it's, it's a very exciting tool set. It's just not one that you, you find very often. And um, I mean, I think he's going to be a guy that, that really shoots up a lot of prospect rankings this season. Um, you know, just nothing but glowing reports on him. The fact that he was the youngest guy in, in any team's uh, alternate training site is, is really uh, an impressive feat. And um so I, I think he's got, you know, all-star upside, uh, could could be on some MVP ballots in his prime, but I definitely wouldn't go so far as to say that he has Juan Soto upside. Oh, OOTP loves him for listeners of the minor <laughs> league extra. Yeah, you, you know all about that. Yeah, he's, uh, I, I just gave him like a $250 million contract. So, <laughs> yeah, in like 2028. So, yeah. 
I I think that it's a very balanced profile, and I think one of the things that people really like about him too is the the maturity that he shows, and a lot of that comes from having a dad who played in the major leagues, and so this is not a foreign world to him. This isn't something he grew up sort of seeing as a possibility. You know, those kids of minor or major leaguers, you know, sort of have that that boost a little bit you know they have that that little bit of extra confidence and he by all accounts fit in really well in camp appleton last year and did a good job and so yeah i'm very excited to see what it's going to look like once we can like see box scores god how much i want to see minor league box scores again (laughs) (laughs) oh so yeah that's uh it's just a question of we have to wait for it so obviously, like the, the ceiling of a Juan Soto is is ridiculous, you know. Like James mentioned, one once in a generation talent, really, and and really the Nats struck gold, kind of going from one nineteen Uber nineteen year old Uber prospect in Bryce Harper to another in Juan Soto, right? So, I I guess jumping off that question and kind of tying back to the 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 Mitchell question, James, do you have maybe a timeline on when Hedbert Perez could possibly make the majors. And I understand this is like an impossible question considering, like you said, he hasn't played a game yet. Yeah. I I think he's going to be one of those guys who debuts by his 20th birthday. Um, Hmm. So, you know, I think he will spend most of this year in full season ball and, uh, you know, I, I mean, he could open next year as uh, for his age 19 season at double A. Like to me, that's that's within the realm of possibility. And then from there, he could I mean, he, he's one of those guys who could like skip triple A completely uh, if he if he performs uh, like a, like I think he could. So, um, I mean, it's it's possible. I mean, he's what, like five years younger than Garrett Mitchell. Like it's possible he beats Mitchell to the majors. That was my question too. You know, we got the the question of you know Mitchell being uh, the uh, the guy to replace Lorenzo Kane, but could it be Hedbert? That would be really aggressive. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's it's it'll it would be interesting to see which of those two will be the better defensive outfielder. I think that that's that's a interesting debate. Um, which which one stays in center? Which one has to move to a corner? I think that that's uh, we just don't have enough information in that uh regard yet but i mean it's it's a good problem to have for sure yeah all right one more uh i guess prospect related question before we kind of wrap things up here but matt finley asking is it all Hedbert? he's also interested in luis medina and jeremy vargas i guess james what could you tell us about those guys and and their ceilings and where they kind of fit into the the brewers farm system yeah vargas uh vargas had a really uh impressive fall instructional league but I, I don't think he I think he's more kind of just sort of advanced and skilled than than overly toolsy. Um, so, you know, kind of uh, like a Bryce Terang type of type of ceiling if it all works out. And then Luis Medina, there just there hasn't been a ton of info on him. Obviously, he was kind of the big prize of their international signing class last year and, you know, was was more uh, widely heralded than Hedbert just a couple of years ago, but he, he's a guy who's just definitely going to be in a corner and he's got huge raw power, you know, that that's going to be his carrying tool. And it's just a matter of how much contact he makes 
you know, I think there's a chance that his swing might be a little, uh, a little grooved and thus um, kind of easy to exploit by uh, advanced pitchers. So, you know, we, we just, we don't have a ton to go on with Medina yet. I mean, the, the power is, is absolutely there for him to profile in a corner, but we just don't know how much contact he's going to make. Yeah. Medina always kind of strikes me as a guy that it's going to take some time and some development because the, the carrying tool being power there, I, like I could see him being one of those guys who emerges late, like a 24, 25, and all of a sudden is just a slugger in the big leagues for a few years, you know, really, really good. But I think it's, it's going to be a, a time consuming process and we're going to have to wait on it. So if he can make those adjustments, like you're saying, that's going to be huge, but the, the raw power is massive. The, the video that I've seen on him is just, it's wild. The ball just yeah, jumps sure. off his bat. Fun to think about for sure. Uh, you know, we talked a lot about prospects in, in the minors this time around, uh, especially with James joining us now uh, on the team. But a reminder, if you want more minor league talk, that's that minor league extra podcast with James and Ryan every single month. Uh, $5 a month, all it takes to, to sign up to become a patron. You get that exclusive content as well. And it, uh, while we're on the topic, Ryan, we do have a new patron to shout out this week. Is that right? Oh, yes, it is. And I have to get to the right page here to remember. So uh, it is Chad uh, Chandoric. Chandornik. Chandornik? Yeah. Sorry, Chad. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thanks um, for signing up, Chad. And and like I always say, the $5 a month gets you the Minor League Extra podcast. It does not guarantee Ryan's correct pronunciation of your name. Uh, so It's probably going <laughs> to be wrong. <laughs> Thank you, Chad, for signing up. And in the meantime, uh, for the rest of you, even if you're not a patron, if you haven't already, please do subscribe to the podcast, whether that's on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Overcast, Pocket Cast, anywhere else you listen to podcasts, please hit the subscribe button. And while you're there, please do leave us a review to help other people find the podcast. In the meantime, we'll wrap things up here. A little quick and tidy episode. A uh, lot of minor league focus, but, you know, there's not a lot to, majors to talk about. So... Hopefully next week we have some news to talk about. In the meantime, stay well, everybody, and we will see you next week on Milwaukee's Game.